My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We are so far behind schedule. We're, we're recording this podcast extremely late in the day, uh, the day before it's due. And it's because even though it was a day off for us, it's been remarkably busy. Uh, so far, we've taken the dogs to get their nails trimmed and we've had a nap. Oh, and we had lunch. <laughs> We've got a lot going on. It's that busy, busy time of year, everyone. Please bear with us as we attempt to uh, put together a podcast for your listening enjoyment. Well, let's say you're listening. <laughs> yeah, let's not overpromise here. Right now, Under- I've still got things I want to do today, so let's get it done. We got a message on on our social media, on our social media. On the social media. Uh, somebody said, thanks, Jethro, for breaking my soul with the story about the Titanic survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're welcome. And I'm about to do it again because here's another travel-related disaster to share. Oh. Yeah. I, I questioned whether or not to do this because I just did the Titanic survivors. Sure. But this is different because it's an airplane. Oh, okay. That was a boat. So... We're going to talk about uh, Eastern Flight 401 that crashed in the Everglades in 1972 and how the ghosts of the crew... Haunt the swamp? No, they they haunted other airplanes. I'll tell you about it. Here's how it happened. Now, the flight was under command of Captain Robert Bob Loft, 55. He was a veteran pilot, ranked 50th in seniority at at Eastern. Captain Loft had uh, been with the airline for 32 years. Now, again, this was in 1972, so he was probably flying those biplanes. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Red Baron kind of planes. Uh, He had over 29,000 flight hours throughout his uh, his career, according to Wikipedia. He had logged 280 hours in this brand new L-1011, which was a brand new airplane at the time. It was state-of-the-art. It was uh, one of those double-body planes. Ooh. His flight crew included First Officer Albert John Stockstill. I'm sorry. Those, whenever, <laughs> all I can think of is like sexy drinking parties on an airplane with those double body planes. Oh, the swankies. Yeah. 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 Uh, second Officer and Flight Engineer Don Repo and Technical Engineer Angelo Donadio. He doesn't get a nickname? 
No, he does not have a nickname. You um. want to make one up for him? But he wasn't on duty. He was, uh, he, was, he was returning to Miami from assignment in New York. The flight was from JFK to Miami Airport. Okay. What they call a non-revenue passenger. He was flying off duty. All right. The flight leaves the ground. It's December 29th. It's between Christmas and New Year's um, in the year 1972, okay. going into 73. When it leaves and, and gets in the air, everything's, everything's fine. It was, it was pretty routine. There was a kind of a jovial spirit. Everybody was excited about going to Miami to uh, spend the New Year in the sun. Sure. There were no incidents until about... Um, 11.32 p.m. when the plane made its, it began its approach into Miami International Airport. After lowering the gear, Stock still noticed that uh, the landing gear indicator, the light on the, uh, on the, on the dashboard, if you will, mm-hmm. did not light, indicating that the nose gear was not properly locked into position. Now, they weren't sure if, uh, if in fact, the, the landing gear was not down or if it was just a burned out light bulb. Right. I immediately think roll down a window and lower someone out on a rope yeah. to take a peek. Well, they almost did that. They they fumbled about for a while trying to uh, to fix the uh, the light bulb, to check and see if the light bulb was burned out. Don Repo pulled the bulb out and then tried to reseat it, but he put it in sideways and it got jammed. Oh, no. They mm-hmm. couldn't get it out. They couldn't put it in. It uh, They weren't, so they didn't know. So they, they cycled the landing gear again, but that still failed to get a confirmation light. So Loft, who was working their radio during the leg of the flight, told the tower that uh, they would discontinue their approach to the airport and requested that they enter a holding pattern Mm -hmm. just so that they would have time to figure out if the landing gear was was actually working or if it was just the bulb burned out. Um, They were unable to determine whether or not uh, the bulb was burned out. They removed the light assembly. They, They fiddled with it for a while. Ultimately, the second officer, Don Repo, was asked to go down into the the avionics bay beneath the flight deck to confirm through a small porthole window if the uh, landing gear in the nose was actually down. Now, they call this the hell hole. It's a trap door in the floor of the cockpit, Uh and you have to climb down into underneath the nose where all the gears and stuff are. Sure. I wouldn't like that at all. Nope. But it makes sense that you should be able to visually tell if all the bits underneath are going off as they should and not rely on tiny, tiny light bulbs. I would agree with that. Thank you. So this comes from the official crash report. The cockpit recorder picked up uh, the sound of laughter as they were uh, messing with the light. They're thinking, geez, you know, hey, this 20-cent piece of equipment is going to bring the plane down. And they're just kind of laughing about it. Loft calmly spoke into the microphone to the controller, Eastern 401. I'll go uh, out west just a little further, see if we can uh, get this light to come back on. The controller responded, all right. Uh, we got you headed westbound there, Eastern 401. It was now 1138. Don Repo is down in the uh, in the hellhole checking to see if uh, the landing gear is down. He's looking out the window, a little porthole, and he can't see it because it's dark. At that point, Don Adio followed uh, Repo down into the hellhole. You mean uh, Great Lakes? Great Lakes? Yeah, it's his new nickname. Why did you name him Great Lakes? Well, because his name, which his full name is... Angelo Donadio. Obviously, you get that Angelo and the Donadio. So I called him Ando. And then I was thinking Andover. And then I was thinking Andover, Minnesota. Uh-huh. And of course, Minnesota <laughs> borders those Great Lakes there. So I'm calling him Great Lakes. Great Lakes Donadio. Yeah. Oh, okay. So two of the crew members are down in the hell hole at this point, trying to see if the, if the uh, landing gear is down. The light, they can't fix the light. They had put it in autopilot, or so they thought... Oh, uh, no. Yeah. 
Captain Loff instructed First Officer uh, Stockstill to put the uh, the plane in autopilot. For the next 80 seconds, the plane maintained level flight. And then it dropped 100 feet, but it continued to fly level for two more minutes. Apparently, he hadn't engaged the, uh, the autopilot. Was that light broken also? Well. Oh, no? Okay, just... Keep keep listening then. Okay, got it. So are Repo Man and Rainbow Trout still downstairs? They're downstairs. The plane has already dropped 100 feet more. It flew level for again for two minutes, after which it began a descent so gradual it could not be perceived by the crew. In the next 70 seconds, the plane lost only 250 feet. But this was enough to trigger the altitude warning C-cord chime located under the engineer's workstation. Unfortunately, the engineer and the assistant were down in the hell hole and didn't hear it. In another 50 seconds, the plane was half its assigned altitude. No. As Stockstill started another turn onto 180 degrees, he noticed the discrepancy. The following conversation was recovered from the flight recorder later. Stockstill, we did something to the altitude. Loft, what? Stockstill, we're still at 2,000 feet, right? Loft, hey, what's happening? At the airport, the approach controller handled uh, another plane and looked again at the radar screen. Uh, on the screen, 401's data block was read CST for coast, which is shown when a beacon target is lost or becomes too weak to correlate for the three sweeps of the radar antenna at the time. Mm. He radioed the plane. He said, uh, Eastern 401, are you requesting the equipment? There was silence. Eastern uh, 401, uh, I've lost you. On the radar there, your transponder, what's your altitude now? Eastern 401 Miami. There was no answer. Then after a few moments of silence and radio static, at 11.43, a message from another aircraft in the area said, uh, Miami Tower, this is National 611. We just saw a big explosion. Looks like it was out west. I don't know what it means, but thought you should know. Jesus. The plane went down about 18 and a half miles from the west end of runway nine left and it landed in the everglades the sawgrass out there was uh, three to ten feet high and the water was uh, six to twelve inches deep the plane was traveling 277 miles per hour i don't what they, but they were descending so slowly how it what happened uh well gravity i guess but it flew right into the ground uh the left wing tip hit first then the left engine and the left landing gear. Together, they slashed three trails through the sawgrass, each five feet wide, about 100 feet long. The main part of the fuselage hit the ground and continued moving through the grass and the water. Uh, it uh, disintegrated as it moved along. From the first impact to the last movement, the uh, plane traveled about a third of a mile. Whoa. Midway along the path, the plane uh, slewed around until it was sliding backwards. The center fuselage burst into five large pieces and countless fragments. All in all, 101 people died on the plane. Miraculously, about 65 survived. Wow. I just don't understand what happened between the time that they were discussing that they were too low and flying directly into the ground. Yeah, there wasn't much time. I guess at 227 miles per hour, they were down, you know, maybe a, like about a thousand feet or less than a thousand feet. That's, that's not very high. That's like three baseball fields, 
you know, that's that's not very high. So even if they had tried to correct, it wouldn't have been be, a plane that size. It yeah. would have been like trying to stop a school bus. Sure. On a, okay. Yeah, yeah. Only a giant plane size school bus. Accord- I just realized how dumb that sounded. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> According to Ann Connell, who was a survivor, when the plane first touched the ground, it seemed that uh, it did so in a normal horizontal landing position. Then it lifted and hit again. Now, keep in mind, nobody knew they were going to crash. Oh, God. They were just coming in what they thought was for a regular landing. No, they didn't. Oh, my God. Then the plane lifted up again. Quote, my husband grabbed me. What followed felt like a roller coaster or a wild whip ride. Her husband, Barry, threw his arm around his wife. Uh, He noticed that uh, while the first touchdown was light, the second and third were hard, grinding impacts. The nose of the plane slewed clockwise. A fireball rushed through the cabin from the front to the rear seats. The plane was skidding when Cornell felt a blast of cold air and wet, inrushing wave of jet fuel. He knew the plane was breaking up. Jeez Louise. In the front of the plane, strapped to her seat against the rear wall of the cockpit, Adrian Hamilton felt the entire nose of the airplane rotate violently to the right. She lurched left, but was held in by her seatbelt. The lights went out, and she was in darkness. She was wet. She smelled the aircraft fuel and was seized by fear of fire. Can you imagine that? No. You're soaked in jet fuel as the plane crashes. So not even the flight attendants knew that something was awry? The pilots didn't. They didn't even have time once they realized the altitude was so low. Oh my goodness, that's terrifying. Because you know, landing is my least favorite part of any flight. I have a really hard time. I <laughs> I'm totally cool like the whole flight and then all of a sudden it's time to get to back to the ground and that's when I start to freak out. So this to me is just the worst thing I can imagine. Forward of the and wing. And it's the thing I have imagined 7000 times. <laughs> Go ahead. Forward on the wing, a guy named Jerry Solomon suddenly saw lights flashing, metal and debris flying through the air. It must have been the electrical system shorting out. There was ripping and tearing and shredding and people crying. I thought I was in a dream. I was just turning, twisting everywhere, everything happening at once. It Mm. wasn't like people were saying, like people say, your life flashes before you. There wasn't any warning. It just happened. It just happened too quickly for me to be frightened. Oh, goodness. A passenger in seat 14E thought the jetliner was making a normal landing. Then he realized that all the airplane forward of his row was gone. Lorenzo Zetlin, a New York interior designer, was in seat 15H. He had been talking to a man next to him, an auto parts dealer from Hialeah. Uh, The plane started shaking, the violent shaking like a cardboard box. It seemed like it was coming apart. Water and oil were everywhere. Zetlin looked up. The man from Hialeah seemed to be on the ceiling. Jerry Esco, still nursing the double scotch in his first class, awakened to a lot of noise and a lot of vibrations. He thought he was still asleep and dreaming. All of the sudden, I felt like I was suffocating. I couldn't breathe. I ripped off my shirt and my jacket. Suddenly, the noise stopped. I was sitting upright in my seat in water up to my waist. It was pitch black. I heard screaming and I realized, if I'm not dreaming, this plane has crashed. But I'm alive. That would be awful waking up from sleep in that manner because you're so confused and your brain's just trying desperately to figure out what's going on. And I imagine as a conscious person, your brain would have a hard time understanding what was going on, let alone someone who's going, well, you're probably still sleeping. Yeah. Can't be real. Right. None of this is real. As I mentioned, um, 101 people 
perished in the flight. And according to Cool Interesting Stuff, although the majority of the airplane was destroyed, certain parts, such as the galley, were salvageable. Eastern and Lockheed agreed that these parts would be reused and fitted into other TriStars on the production line. What? Yeah. Did we learn nothing from James Dean's car? Yeah, well, this is where we're going with this. One such aircraft was N-318EA, and as the weeks and months passed, strange goings-on began to occur. JFK Airport, 1973, an Eastern Airlines TriStar was boarding for its flight to Miami. Traveling that morning was one of the airline's vice presidents. As a VIP passenger, he was allowed to uh, board the aircraft first, made his way to the first-class cabin. As he uh, moved toward his seat, he noticed a company captain in full uniform and went over to have a chat. During the ensuing conversation, he suddenly realized he was speaking with Bob Loft, who was well-known in the company. The apparition quickly disappeared and the vice president rushed off to find a crew member, terrified that it could be an omen that something would happen to the aircraft. A uh, search of the plane was carried out before any other passengers were, were allowed to board and there was no sign of the mystery captain. Uh, a few months later, back at JFK, a crew boarding the same aircraft was surprised to see Loft already on board. They apparently chatted to the ghost, not realizing who he was, before he vanished right before their eyes. The flight was later canceled as the crew was just too shaken to operate. Shaken, not stirred, maybe. Maybe. <clears throat> On board the L-1011, flight engineers would usually arrive at the aircraft before the other crew to carry out their pre-flight checks. On one particular day, a flight engineer was stunned to see an Eastern second officer already in his seat. He immediately recognized him as Don Repo. And the apparition said to him, You don't need to worry about the pre-flight. I've already done it. Before disappearing before his eyes. Some weeks later, another captain was checking the instruments before a flight from Miami to Atlanta. Staring him right in the face was the unmistakable outline of Repo's face. The captain claimed he distinctly heard the words, There will never be another crash on an L-1011. We will not let it happen. During a flight from Atlanta to Miami, the flight deck crew were enjoying their meal as they cruised at 39,000 feet. Suddenly there was a, a loud knocking from the hellhole. By now, the ghostly stories had uh, had begun to circulate around the company, and the crew, needless to say, were reluctant to Little, look in. Yeah, sure. But the knocking continued, and uh, the flight engineer opened the hatch. He was horrified to see the face of Don Repo staring back at him. This was where the engineer had been when the flight had crashed. Oh gosh! So he had no he had no protection at all. Nope. It was right where the yep. plane is coming in. He probably didn't even know what happened. And it wasn't just flight crew members who saw ghostly uh, things. On one occasion, several caterers loading the plane for its next flight were seen rushing off the jet. They refused to get back on when they were asked why. They said that they had seen a flight engineer uh, stood in the galley before vanishing right before their eyes. Passengers also reported strange occurrences. Uh, a woman sat next to an eastern pilot who said she looked ill, called a stewardess only for the pilot to disappear. Another lady summoned a crew member as she was... Uh, concerned about a pilot sitting next to her he was unresponsive he was not uh, responding to any of her conversations that man once again disappeared leaving the passenger understandably hysterical there was another story where um, one of the stewardesses 
were in the galley and they were heating up food Mm -hmm. and they looked in the glass oven door Mm -hmm. and saw the uh, face of Don Repo staring back through the glass and the oven door. I've I've thought that I've seen the same uh, because it seems like somehow grease gets in between that the outside Uh and the inside and like there's two panels or something and I can't get up in between there to right. There's it, no tool to... And it looks like a like a dead flight engineer's face. It looks like something. So needless to say, Eastern Airlines at the time, uh, you know, they kind of publicly poo-pooed all of this, but uh, the reports were given... Well, it seems like by some pretty reputable people. Yeah. Reputable people in, within the company, including one of the vice presidents. Right. And although the airline point blankly refused to believe the spooky stories, the sightings were all reported to the Independent Flight Safety Foundation, who later commented, quote... The reports were given by experienced and trustworthy pilots and crew. We consider them significant. Eastern went on to warn employees they could face dismissal if they were caught spreading the ghost stories. As the sightings became more and more frequent, rumors began to circulate that pilots and crew refused to fly on the L-1011s that had parts of the doomed jet fitted into it. Uh, Paranormal investigators requested numerous times to be allowed to investigate. Of course, they were refused by Eastern Airlines. But regardless of whether or not Eastern publicly said, yeah, we, we don't believe this, all the salvaged parts from 401 were later removed from the suspected jets. The ghosts of Bob Loft and Don Repo were never seen again, but their haunting words to protect Eastern's L-1011 fleet came true in the years after the crash. Until the airline's closure, there were no other fatal crashes on board the TriStar fleet. Wow. Why didn't, uh, didn't Fishman ever show up as a ghost on the planes? Fishman? Yeah, Fishy D'Angelo. Fishy. Oh, you changed his name again. You know, it just makes sense. Great Lakes, Rainbow Trout, Fishy. Sure, okay. Um, I don't know why. Most of the sightings seemed to revolve around Don Repo Mm. and Bob Loft, for whatever reason. A book came out in the mid-70s called The Ghosts of Flight 401. The author was sued by the families of uh, Bob Loft and Don Repo. But it was made into a NBC Saturday Night movie. Oh, really? Yeah. So there oh, you have it. Oh, I miss Saturday Night movies. Yeah. I don't, just the idea. You know, first of all, plane crashes are horrifying to everybody. And the idea of not even knowing you're crashing and then waking up waist deep in water and jet fuel. Right. That's a horrifying thought. But then the idea of them repurposing the parts of the aircraft, sending them back to Lockheed having them reinstalled and new jets on the production line and then start having these weird things happen. I'm just, I would be concerned about, I mean, I suppose they would have to be tested for structural soundness, but I feel like if it's already been through a plane crash, it's done enough. (laughs) Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to test it. Yeah. Time to retire that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems at least those ghosts had good intentions. They weren't there to scare people. They were there to protect people. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about the airplane ghosts, but I, I do think that probably reusing crashed materials is not a good idea. That's your opinion? It's my official stance on crashed airplane materials. Never argue with Kat when it comes to repurposing crashed airline materials. <laughs> I learned that lesson a long time ago. <laughs> That thing on the side? No. It's that thing in the middle. 
An excerpt from the New York World's Fair catalog in 1939. Come tour America of 1960 with General Motors. See a view of tomorrow's cities, a panorama of today's countryside on moving sound chairs, while the friendly voice of an unseen guide describes the wonders that can happen here. Here's what GM thought 1960 would look like. The food supply is endless, as scientists have developed methods to artificially pollinate plants and flowers. All fruit and vegetable farming is done under a giant glass dome. Nobody lives in big cities in the 1960s. Everyone lives in suburbs or the country. Futuristic cities are devoted to industry, business, and cultural pursuits. Those who don't work in the city or live in the suburbs reside in small villages. Each such village is home to one factory that produces one industrial item. All skyscrapers are outfitted with landing decks for helicopters and flying cars called autogyros. The average highway of 1960 is 14 lanes wide, seven in each direction, but all these lanes don't have the same speed limit. Four lanes are for driving 50 miles per hour, two for 75, and one for 100 miles per hour. And the road isn't flat. The edges of the road curve up to create barriers on each side, so each lane remains separate and the fast-moving cars don't veer into each other. To prevent accidents, radio waves ensure that cars travel at equal distances from each other, never getting too close. These super-fast highways will enable coast-to-coast -coast travel in about 24 hours, allowing Americans to spend their two-month compulsory vacation virtually anywhere they please. So strap on your jetpack and get set to blast into the city of the future, you silly little shits. What a magical treat. I can't wait for the 1960s. <laughs> Personally. The thing that I think that was the most weird for me is that, yeah, we'd have flying cars. Okay, I get that. But they'd be called auto gyros or auto, whatever. Auto gyros. Why do you think that you get to be the one that names it? Like, that's... No, come on, GM. You don't get to name it. Unless you built it. Maybe they were planning on building them and never got around to it. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah. But you can't say there's going to be this thing in the future and it's going to be called. I mean, you can say what it would be like because you would imagine that the progression would naturally take us there. But to say it's going to be called something specific <laughs> yeah. to me seems incredibly outlandish. I don't know. Maybe, you know. By the year 2121, we'll all have robots serving us called Snigglepoos. <laughs> right? We'll all have our personal Snigglepoos, whatever I said. Anyway. What you got for me? What what you what what you what you got for me? What 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 what, what you got for me? We had a uh, somebody comment and say that uh that got stuck in their head, the what you got for me thing gets stuck in their head and they answer their phone that way. So I thought I'd put it to music. I love it so much. I really I'm I'm quite taken with it. And now that's gonna be stuck in my head. Good. What you got um okay so you wanna you wanna know what okay. Yeah I get it. Okay, yeah. Hoping maybe. Um so I found this a uh, series of articles that were super interesting. And we were talking about getting ready for the holidays. And at work, I had mentioned that we had to get our Christmas shopping list done because um, we have Christmas Big Macs to make. And so naturally, one of my coworkers was like, a what? <laughs> and 
I had to explain that we do Christmas Eve Big Macs every year. It's our tradition. Um, we make them at home. Uh, they're vegetarian. JG makes this amazing faux Big, faux Mac. Big Mac sauce yeah. that's incredible. I thought back to this series of articles that I read about unusual Christmas treats that uh, people celebrate with all around the world. Oh. And so I thought, what better time to bust this out than during the holidays. Let's so, hear it. as I mentioned, much of this comes from uh, NPR and their 12 Days of Quirky Christmas Foods Around the Globe, which is a series of 12 articles uh, that they did. Uh, also, Wikipedia. Here we go. For centuries, many people in Central Europe uh, relied on a simple main course for Christmas Eve dinner. It's not a Big Mac, it's <laughs> a carp. A carp. And the tradition goes that the Christmas carp must be caught or purchased live and then a day or two before being killed must live in the uh, family bathtub? bathtub. No. For at least a day or two. What about what if they only had like an upright shower stall? <laughs> like in an efficiency apartment. I don't know. I don't know about the ins and outs of it. Maybe they'd get one of those baby tubs or like one of those kitty pools. Pools, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So it becomes incredibly uh, difficult for people to bathe. I guess they <laughs> they don't. Uh, kids name them, and uh, the the fish just live in there. the The idea is that the fish swimming around in the clean water helps them flush the mud out from the fish's digestive tract uh, because carp are kind of a gross fish. They're bottom feeders. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea is like it'll it'll flush them out. Uh, Word is, though, that does not work. It just messes up your bathroom fixtures. <laughs> it was also a practical way to store the fresh fish uh, before refrigerators were common. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of like when they used to take live cows on boat trips. Sure. Because that kept Watch them... them as you need them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It kept the meat fresher longer. The carp were usually served breaded and fried. They also have a traditional cabbage soup that has a couple types of meat. And traditionally, the only other dish is potato salad, which I feel like more Christmas dinners should include potato salad. Every meal should include potato salad. I'm on board. Even breakfast. In Slovakia, this I thought was crazy interesting. In Slovakia, the holiday is steeped in superstition and symbolism. The table is set with all the foods for the feast before everyone sits down and then once everyone's seated no one can leave the table until everyone is done eating no one can leave to go to the bathroom no one can leave because they're choking on a stick that you cannot leave <laughs> what about cell phones are they allowed at the table can, can you be surfing the net traditionally yeah. no oh bummer but uh i hate old-timey christmas if someone does leave the table it means that there will be a death in the family before the next christmas <laughs> arrives that's nice and uh it might be you mr getting up pants Families, holidays. <laughs> families also sit an extra or set an extra place for an unexpected guest or a recently departed relative. Oh, cool. I like that. Which idea. I think is kind of nice. That is nice. Maybe not the departed relative because that's wasteful. But I like the idea of setting the table for an unexpected guest, like a neighbor might pop by. Sure, or sure. I just love that sense, that idea that, oh, someone might want to take part in our holiday meal and we want to be ready for them. I want to feed a poltergeist. That I would be fun. <laughs> 
then once that meal ends, everyone checks under the plate to retrieve fish scales from the the bathtub carp. The scales <sighs> signify luck for the year ahead. People actually save them. They put them in their wallets and they carry them around until the next Christmas. I bet that smells delightful. Which is, I just think, adorable. I love it. What's that smell? I got carp in my wallet. I have carp to carp walleting. Oh, wow. That was a stretch. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sorry. Okay. In Guyana, they have two meals that are traditionally served uh, around the Christmas time. One is called pepper pot that's served on Christmas Day. It's actually the first course that they serve. And that's a, a stew of sorts that starts with tough beef parts like shanks, trotters, and tails. What are trotters? I'm, I'm afraid to ask. Is that the feats? Trot, trot, trot. I guess that would make sense, yeah. Okay, let's go with that. Um, And they benefit from a long cooking, of course, because they're so tough to begin with. So they're tossed with cinnamon and cloves from neighboring spice islands and peppers. Uh, Pepper pot is then cooked on and off for days. In between stewing, it sits out on the stove at room temperature. So they uh, put it on for a day or so. They turn it off. They let it cool, hang out. Just room temperature for a day or so. Mm. Cook it again for like two days. Room temperature, cinnamon coated horse feet. Mm. No one said horse. Or whatever they are. Um, So usually, obviously, that's not a good idea to leave the (laughs) the meat pile out for room temperature for a while. Uh, But... There is a secret weapon in this dish, and it's called kasarip, and that's a thick sauce made uh, from the cassava root. It's one of the country's oldest traditional foods, and it's like a powerful antiseptic, which sounds delicious. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) And that Mm. helps keep the the meat from killing you, which is good. Um, The second essential Christmas dish in Guyana is garlic pork, and that comes from a Portuguese culinary tradition. So as with pepper pot, it also has kind of a iffy preparation. The pork sits out at room temperature for weeks, uh-huh. uh, but it's coated in salt and vinegar, so it's okay. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. You don't have to worry about that. Good. It's uh, Yeah, here's the tongue of a dead animal that we've soaked in hand sanitizer. (laughs) I'm sure it's fine. But from what I read, um, after the the two weeks in in the brine, uh, the meat is fried and it's impossible to keep in the house. Like the families just go nuts. Everyone just, it's like, it's a delicacy. They don't do it a lot. It's amazing. And they mix it in with like their eggs and they, they put it on other foods. They mix it in with, it's just delicious and amazing and they lose their minds. So it's, I think one of those things where the preparation, because it's traditional, because they've been doing it forever, they don't even think about it. But even if they did, they wouldn't because it's tasty. Mm, yeah, you know? I suppose. Yeah. There's a ratio that comes into play there the more delicious it is the more you're willing to forgive how horrifying what it is you're putting in your mouth exactly it's like uh it's like i've said about clothes you know i'll go into a store and i'll see a top and i'll be like that top's ugly no one's gonna wear that and then i'm like oh it's three dollars suddenly i'm interested yeah i (laughs) Uh, uh sure it's exactly the same thing You bought a $3 top when we were in Ecuador that has hot sauce bottles all over it. It's a tank top. You wear it all the time. (laughs) 
Now let's talk about lefsi. This isn't a weird thing so much, but it is a Scandinavian treat that is especially popular around Christmas holidays. And many Scandinavian Americans uh, brought this tradition uh, with them to the States and they they celebrate it sometimes at Thanksgiving, but mostly it's a Christmas thing. Okay. Now, lefsi are like a, uh, like a soft tortilla, but it's made out of mashed potatoes. Go on. I know. So um, I'm listening. They make the mashed potatoes. Uh, I guess modern day, a lot of people use the fake mashed potatoes, the the mm. um, dry mix, the, the powder. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it helps with texture a lot. But so they they make it, they prep it, they put it in the fridge so it cools. They mix it with a little bit of uh, some sort of fattening agent and maybe uh, hand a, sanitizer. Like butter. Oh, okay. Rather than hand sanitizer, different kind of flavor. Mm-hmm. Make a dough out of it, if you will. Flatten it real flat with a very special rolling pin that has grooves in it. And then fry it up. I am totally in. I am in. They're usually spread with butter and sugar. Sometimes they're rolled up with a bit of jam. It's cooked on a large flat griddle. There are specialty tools for making them. Family members often gather to cook these as a group effort uh, because the process is more enjoyable as a traditional holiday activity. So everyone gets together and they make just a ton of these and then you just eat them all day long. That sounds like a wonderful day. I'm so excited about adding this to our holiday traditions. We have so many traditions. I don't know if there's room. We're doing it. All right. In Greenland, uh, one of their holiday traditions is M-A-T-T-A-K. Matak. Uh, it, it's whale skin with a strip of blubber inside. And then kiviak, K-I-V-I-A-K, which is the raw flesh of uh, ox, which is uh, an Arctic bird. That that meat's been decomposing for a while, mm. buried in a seal skin for oh, several months. That sounds lovely. I'm going to stick with the potato tortillas. Mm. Thanks. Japan. Here we go. In 1974, Kentucky Fried Chicken took advantage of the fact that turkey is not readily available in Japan, and they started advertising chicken for Christmas in Japan. Now, Japan's not got a huge uh, Christian population, but they do celebrate Christmas as a prosperity celebration. I see. They're into like the commercial side of it, hardcore. And they have these specialty cakes that they make. They're like the white cakes with the red strawberries on top. You've mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. seen them. It, there's actually an emoji for it on your phone. But um, they don't have like a big meal thing. So... KFC took advantage of this. The idea took off, and it's become a real Japanese custom to eat KFC for Christmas. This is the only country where a fast food outlet offers a set meal for Christmas, which includes cake and champagne, along with the famous fried chicken. Even though you can order in advance, there are long lines waiting for uh, KFC on Christmas Day. It's it's become like a really traditional that's, part of many families. That's amazing. Christmases. And that was the early. St- Whose phone was that? It was my phone. Sorry. Sorry. Now, there should be some sort of, you know, whoever, whosever phone makes a noise during recording, the other one gets something. What would you like? Well, I don't know. Something pretty. Something shiny. <laughs> I'll work on it. That's- okay. Hula debts. The. 
dish is mostly part of a winter holiday festive meal, but because refrigeration's become a thing over the years and you can cook this all year round, it's not surprising to see these on the table at summertime, but it is considered a traditional holiday dish in Russia. Kuladets, which is spelled K-H-O-L-O-D-E-T-S. They're made by boiling pork bones and meat for about five to eight hours to produce a fatty broth. Uh, they mix that with salt, pepper, and other spices. And then, uh, so the meat and the, the juice there is separated, mm-hmm. and the meat's minced into small pieces. And then they mix in kind of like a gelatin with the broth and uh, then put the meat bits back into it and then let it set. So it's like a meat broth jello. Oh, wow. With bits of meat in it, with bits of pork floating about in it. Num city. It can be made with uh, chicken also, but either way, you know, yeah. it's, it's jello j- with meat jello. M- meat jello. Yeah, it which reminds me of our video that we made uh, with the the vintage recipe with the aspic. Yeah, it was like ham and Jello. It was turkey, turkey and Jello. That yeah. was yeah, yeah. They made weird things back in the fifties. Yeah, um, I actually got into a bit of a. That's why I was running late today. I got into a bit of a a rabbit hole of uh, gross fifties meals that they they did for parties like yeah. shrimp. Christmas trees, uh, which actually, in order to do those shrimp Christmas trees that you sometimes see in like vintage movies and stuff, they had to staple the shrimp to the the thing, and it was gross. Anyway, wow, that sounds like potential choking hazard. Yeah, it's not a good idea. No. Uh, also, tuna Christmas trees, hmm. which involves also a lot more stationary than I think you should be involved in <laughs> meal prep. <laughs> Were there staples also involved in that as no, well? No, but cardboard. Well, there you go. Yeah. Mm, no, yeah. thanks. I no. I don't. No. No. I feel like, and this is a thing I think a lot of people do, like they want to make something to present at a party that looks amazing, but you have to think about what it's going to look like as people are eating it. <laughs> and if you're seeing staples yeah. and it starts to look like a massacre, don't, that's no make a different choice put it in a bowl honey come on we're gonna be late for the party i can't i'm stapling shrimp i'm a shrimp stapler you know that carl carl's always trying to squash your your spirit my holiday joy <laughs> damn you carl anyway that's what i've got for and i, I want to make sure that that we understand that I'm talking about these with the highest regard um, because I do understand that they're traditional and maybe, you know, we have some traditional stuff that I don't dig into on the regs, but because it's traditional, you don't even consider that it might be kind of weird and gross. Like mincemeat. Mincemeat. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's a meat pie and it's spicy. It's got raisins in it and meat. And we just accept it as well. It's part of the holidays. It's mincemeat. But maybe in some other part of the world, they're going, ooh, give me more carp. Right. I used to uh, hang out with a family that put sausage in their stuffing. And I thought that was terribly weird. Hmm. And it also stole stuffing from me. Yeah, because it had sausage in it. And yeah, you know. I mean, love stuffing. <laughs> no, I know you do, sweetie. I know you do. Well, I'm anyway. going to stick with the, uh, with, the, with the Big Macs on, the, on, the, on Christmas Eve. 
Yeah, up high. Okay, our, our vegetarian Big Macs that we make. They're really quite good, actually. You don't have to convince anyone. Well, I was just about to invite everybody over to our house for no, Christmas No, more for me. Okay, all right. I mean, I'll set one plate. One. One, that's it. But probably a poltergeist is going to show up <laughs> and eat your health. In, okay, so... so. Annie Hoosel, don't forget our live show at Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville on the 27th of February. Still some tickets available as of the recording of this program. You can get them by going to our website, theboxofoddities.com. The Box of Oddities. All right, that's our show. Our slapped together at the last minute production. We still have to do Christmas shopping. Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to tootle off. We'll see you again on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.